Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mama's Pearls. I am your hostess, Cynthia, and I am so excited to have you all with me today. It's been a rather exciting week here on Mama's Pearls. I've been really amping up to um, do some more publicity for the show and for the Mama's Pearls brand, and so I've gotten some really great feedback and responses. I was actually um, invited on to another show being hosted here at Blog Talk Radio, um, called by Pink Purse International called the Women of Power Hours, and I just wanted to to take a moment to thank um, to thank Miss Faye, the hostess there, to, of having me on the show. It was really really fun, and it was nice to to be a guest on another show, um, and to just you know, little little less pressure, but um, I just wanted to thank Faye so much again for having me on the show. Um, anyone who wants to listen to the show, I'm, I posted it around on my Facebook page, and you can also um, just find it if you click on to Blog Talk Radio and look for Pink Purse International. So thank you again, Faye. And um, again, we're here at Mama's Pearls where we're taking the most beautiful pieces of life and stringing them together. And thank you again to my to my friend Lisa Rama Davis for that beautiful tagline, which I think pieces together so perfectly what I'm trying to do here on Mama's Pearls, and that is, you know, tackling the issues and the the joint love fear. And um, and feelings that we all have towards towards being a parent and towards being a conscious person living in the world. And there there's no better way that that I could have, <laughs> that I could have on my own put it together. So thank you again to to Lisa. Last week we were very fortunate to have um, Dr. Gay Hendricks on our show. And the show was Marriage Bound, and the Pearl of the Week was Individuate and Graduate. And Dr. Gay Hendricks, along with his wife, Dr. Kathleen Hendricks, have really been at the forefront of the transformational relationship world um, for about 30 years. Between them, they've written over 30 books, and they're just the go-to people. They have their own foundation, the Hendricks Institute, which you can find at www.hendricks.com. And they've been really working within this space for about 30 years and have become the the you know, two of the most sought-after speakers and lecturers um, and counselors in this space. And I've, I've come to know them personally through my work um, at the Spiritual Cinema Circle, which was originally Gay's idea to, to put together. And uh, like I said on the show last week on Marriage Bound, he's not only a relationship guru, a best-selling author that turns out these 
these books I think he puts out about one a year. He also is um, is a very driven entrepreneur and a visionary. So it was really, really great to have him on and talk about what it means to walk around unconscious and how when you walk around unconscious, that really does bleed into and affect your, your lives, obviously, and how you can wake up from that and be alongside your partner in a very co-committed way. Um, it's not easy. You know, we get so wrapped up in what we're doing and the day-to-day stuff that we forget to look over at our partner and and remember that relationship and give time to it and, um, and appreciate it. And Gabe was really on the show to remind us how to do that, how to take our steps, and stay committed, in, you know, co-committed in a relationship. And I was very psyched. We had um, we had a caller last week that was um, his name was Omega. And Omega, I hope you are listening this week again because you are actually my first caller who was not a family or a friend or somebody that I knew. So that was that was very exciting for me. And Omega called in with the question: Who he was? He's been married just um, since under a year, or he's in his first year of marriage and was having some issues with regards to letting his wife know that she is appreciated and basically helping her um, get through the insecurities that, that she might have. And when I got off the show, I was thinking about how hard the first year of marriage is. It was, for me, like the, the best and the worst year. It's like you come into, no matter how long you've known your spouse beforehand, like, and, you know, some people get married after having been with their um, their spouse for, like, 10 years and then they finally get married. It's that first year of marriage really sets up a different tone. It's like it's no longer you guys are separate. It's you guys, you come together as a couple, and there's so much that you're trying to figure out just in your own structure of how it's going to work. And it's really setting the foundation for your relationship for the rest of your your marriage and life together. And it's not an easy time by any means. I remember having lots of conversations with my husband and with my parents and with, you know, the people around me and with my in-laws about setting down the boundaries and kind of laying the groundwork for, you know, the new framework that was now Craig and I and not necessarily me and my my parents or Craig and his parents, which are two totally separate dynamics. You know, I don't know um, at what stage you're coming into your marriage, Omega, but, um, you know, for me, I was in my in my late 20s, and I was, you know, on my path, like when, you know, when you hit like the quarter-life crisis being 24, 25, you know, that's when it's really time to set it out and, um, and, and be independent in your young adult life. And like I say, you kind of go into like this quarter-life crisis. And for me, it was like moving from the scope of being under my parents' umbrella to now creating my own umbrella for my husband and I and later for my family to follow. So I hear you, Omega. I know it's, it's really hard to kind of um, to deal with all of that one, at once, especially in your, in your first year of marriage. It's, it's very, very challenging. But um, as, as Gay was saying, you know, as, um, as, as a way to finding your own true power and be able to stand equal in your relationship, it's a matter of giving the space and just you both having the genuine commitment to each other, to your relationship, um, and to yourself. So 
I wish you luck, and thank you again to Dr. Gay Hendricks for, for coming on the show and, and helping us figure out how we can individuate and graduate into our, our true power in a relationship. And for me, it was really a, a way to shake off the whole image as a spouse being a ball and chain. So, um, so thank you again. You can find Marriage Bounds on Blog Talk Radio, www.blogtalkradio.com slash Mama's Pearls, and it is in the archives in the April, in the April show. So this week, we are... We okay. We we focus on our kids. We focus on our relationships with our spouse. Now we're going to talk about our friends, and this week is dedicated to the friends in in our lives, whether it be girlfriends or man friends or whoever your your close knit group of friends are. And for me, it really I was focused on remembering. Um, when I was shifting into focusing on the, on this week and getting into to the friendships and scanning over the friends that I've had over the years and looking at who who I've reconnected with and my new friends, especially on on my Facebook community and you know all these different like social networks, it's kind of funny because throughout my life there's been a different set of of friends that have come into the space at, at a certain time. Nursery school, I could start I could start there with the with my group of friends there and then going into elementary school and then into high school, my close group of girlfriends with a freaky five, and then I had another close group of girlfriends that I was, I'm still friends with. Moving on to to college, my friends there, and then um, camp, I had my crusty sisters, and then um, bringing me to law school where in law school, and I write about this in, in this week's blog, it's um it's basically like a prime environment and like testing ground for yourself and your spirit and you really have to want to um to be there and go through that and some people walk through completely un- unscathed throughout law school and um other people get get completely eaten alive and you really see like the best and worst of people through that experience you know I've said on on past blogs it's kind of like going through a war zone um, going through a war in law school and I was really lucky to have um, to have connected with and found a group of girlfriends that were right there with me and um, you know we we joke we used to joke but we were totally serious that we were like the pink ladies of our law school and it was really the first time where I was in such an intense environment like law school that can get really competitive and can turn into like a mean girls jungle atmosphere where I found women who were so truly supportive and truly rooting me on. And my friend Trisha would just, I remember like just freaking out and she was like, Cynthia, you're brilliant, you're smart, you're intelligent, you're funny, you're fabulous. And just going down this whole long line of positive adjectives. And at first I really didn't know how to, how to, or whether I could even like accept her compliments. Like, was she just kidding? Like, you know, what is that? And when I come to think of it now and setting up for this week was really about, you know, when you accept the positivity, that's where you you really gain um, 
gain empowerment in your lives and where you really feel confident and assured, not from an ego standpoint, because it's easy to accept compliments and go into an ego phase, but really at your heart and core to just put the negativity aside and say, yeah, you know what, I I have all my capabilities. I didn't get to, to where I was. For me, it was law school on nothing, and I can do this. And it's so much easier when you have cheerleaders and way so much more fun when you have a set of cheerleaders um, really encouraging you on to to step into your, your true self. And my grandmother used to always say that in this life you need a great group of girlfriends. And she was really she was really right. Um, our relationships with our friends and particularly our girlfriends are are crucial in terms of helping with our self esteem and building confidence and getting validated, and um, and which led me to set the blog and the tone for the week, which is girl power. Now you can definitely take a parallel view to this that it applies to both male and female friends, but me being a woman and who I am, um, I'm focused more on the female aspect, and I knew once I met that our our special guest this week, oh, and by the way, the, the pearl of the week this week is pretty in pink, because it's just spring, and it's pretty, and we should all, all always love the feminine energy that, that the females put into this space, and I'm all about the rise of, like, the divine feminine, and when I was really thinking about that, and after I met our special guest who's going to be joining us on the call today, her name is Cynthia Greenwald, and her, well, the second I met her, I really just was in awe as far as one, hearing about her lineage and how strongly suited she was to the empowerment of women. And when we were really talking, she was really really putting it out there strongly in a way that I really believe, too, is that when you empower your group of women and your friends and women in other countries, it really helps uplift communities and as a whole. And everything basically starts thriving when women can stand in their true power and in their true center. You know, the male the male kind of version and dynamic is more about conquer and conquest, where the female dynamic is more about nurturing and caretaking and developing each other. And when we can do that without prejudice and without negativity, I just think the sky's the limit. So I'm very happy to introduce you all to Cynthia. Cynthia has been a contributing author to both the New York Times bestseller, Masters of Networking, and the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Masters of Success. And she is a successful entrepreneur, an investor, a speaker, a writer, an educator on the power of social capital. She is a co-founder of the Referral Institute of South Florida and founder of both the Fort Lauderdale, Broward, and Miami-Dade franchises for BNI Business Network International, the world's leading referral organization. Cynthia is just a master in social networking and how to empower people on her own. She graduated from the Wharton School of Business, and she provides entrepreneurs, community leaders, and executives with access to extraordinary results by developing their social capital and increasing their return on relationships. So with that, I welcome to Mama's Pearls, Ms. Cynthia. Hi, Miss Cynthia. This is so cool having two Cynthias on the line. I know. We're just going to confuse everyone, but whatever. It's great. <laughs> and I was just thinking the day we met, weren't we both wearing pink? 
I know I was wearing pink, and I think you made a comment like, wow, we're both wearing pink. So yeah. I just thought that was kind of fortuitous as well. Well, we met at um, at the Sourcebooks party through um, Laura Duxta, who is a you know best-selling author and just a wonderful woman who who is so empowered in her own right and basically stands up for empowering empowering women and basically spreading the conversation of love. And she, Laura has just the most colorful group of friends. And the second I met you, I remember saying we were setting up to um, up a brunch for that weekend and seeing who could come. And you're like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. I'm like, no, no, no. We need to talk some more. You, you really need to come. <laughs> <laughs> that was so great. Yeah. And that did make a difference because it's interesting. The um, One of my favorite topics is the power that commitment adds to, you know, whatever we're doing, you know, when there's a wish, if I'd been, you know, I said, oh, I don't know if I can, and then you were just saying, I want you there, and there was that sense of accountability for me, so that when I went to rearrange my day, even though I came to the brunch, like, in the second half, it was like, right. even though I wanted to see Laura, and I, she was visiting from Florida up here in New York, I remember thinking, wait a minute, you know, Cynthia Whitman is, like, really taking a stand that I'm there, there's something we know we're, we're out to create together, we don't even know what it is yet, get there. And it was very powerful. I think that's, um, it just brings up like who friends can be for each other is, um, you know, the reminder of like you can be, you can do what you sometimes don't think you can do and kind of hold each other to account. And, um, you know, there's one of my friends, Eric Worre, who would say that leaders do what, the presence of a leader has people do what otherwise they wouldn't do. But like they know they can. And so leaders and friends who act as a leadership presence in the lives of their friends, you know, calls us, they call us to be kind of beyond where we kind of might just comfortably stop. And that's what you did, and it was really very powerful. Yeah, it was cool. And and then mm-hmm. after, after our brunch, we continued talking on for like two more hours. <laughs> mm-hmm. We had like the post-brunch, you know, coffee tea over little, little organic pretzels that we were eating. That was great. Those are really good. That pretzel cookie was just out of this world. Uh-huh. I took my husband back there, and, and he said, wow, how did you find this place? I said, well, let me tell you who I sat right in that chair next to, and I got to tell him all about our conversation. <laughs> really great. That's awesome. Well, I'm really excited to to have you on today. And one of the things I remember you sharing with me that I was hoping you would share with the Mama's Pearls community was about your extraordinarily strong female lineage. Absolutely. It, it's really kind of interesting how it even came about. We were getting ready to do a family reunion. The family reunion was probably about three years ago, so about three years prior, so somewhere about six years ago. My dad was getting ready, and we had to plan it three years in advance to make sure all the cousins and the little kids could you know, get the time off, blah, blah. And we met in New Hampshire, and that was the plan. So three years beforehand, my dad starts getting all obsessed with our family tree. And then he digs around, he finds something. And I remember being at, getting ready to go into a luncheon, a powerful women's luncheon in Boca Raton, of all things, right? So I'm about to go into this women's luncheon. It's called Women, Women of Excellence was the name of the luncheon. And... I'm on the phone with my dad. He says, Finn, you're not going to believe what I found. And I said, he said, I found this, you know, in the box of all his mother's things that he had, you know, kept and hadn't been through in a while. And she died, you know, like 30 years ago. So he was looking through it. He found this sort of folder that had all the preserved newspaper clippings written by, and what's interesting is, I still remember how many greats, but it's three greats. So it's my great, great, great grandmother Jenkins, 
And what's fascinating, though, is it's my dad's, it's up, uh, you know, it's my dad, so it's like my paternal side, but up from my dad, it's all the women. So it's his mom's mom's mom, you know, like that, all the way up. So it's all the way up to this powerful lineage of women, that, which is what started having me really be fascinated. But he said, Sin, all these articles are articles she wrote and she was one of the five like key lieutenants that directly worked with Susan B. Anthony for women's right to vote and who women are for change and the voice that we need to hear women's voice. And he said it was these are the most eloquent articles. And I've always had this idea of you know publishing a book with these these elements because it's just such an interesting place to see that it started so long ago, but it's just it's a new message to hear in a several thousand year old you know patriarchal model that we've lived in so it's it's what you just said you know the rise of the 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 feminine you know the the feminine the, the divine it's very interesting because even men are having that kind of wake up here's my dad and he goes soon i've always had deep respect for women and i remember saying dad no wonder you married my mom because my mom is a powerhouse one of five women in 1962 she went to the wharton school of business there were 200 men and five women so even for my dad, it was no accident that he would attract that kind of woman. He had, he had the space and the deep respect for powerful women. So I started just really being fascinated by all all of that and seeing that it, it's a dance you know, for women to emerge as leaders. Men are also reinventing themselves to hold a new space for how women's power can show up in their world. So it's just been a really amazing thing to see it kind of right there in front of my eyes growing up. I had this powerful woman that went after it, so I was always taught, because I'm 45 now, I was always taught, you know, you can have whatever you want, because that was the path my mom had blazed, and her mom was a trailblazer, so I sort of grew up oblivious for a while that there was anything going on, like women just, just go do it, and then I started noticing my own women friends holding back, doubting themselves, you know, willing to kind of play, you know, kind of second seat in a relationship, so that's kind of who I got to be for a lot of my friends was helping them stand up for themselves, take you know, take a stand, speak their voice, speak their mind, believe in themselves. And now it's really so many more women are doing that that we're just all kind of collaborating together. And the men that show up around that are just incredible because they're like, hey, this is so cool. I don't have to be the, the everything. I mean, this can really be co-equal partnership. When women gain their power, men have a new kind of partnership that has them reevaluate and reinvent themselves. That's a little bit about the family twist. Yeah, no, it's just it's just awesome. And um, I just wanted to invite our listeners, if you want to join in the conversation with Cynthia and Cynthia today, <laughs> you can call in at 347-327-9450. So what do you do with that? And how do you feel, you know, because one of the important facets of Mama's Pearls is and why basically the blog got started and everything and what catapulted me on this journey was a, was for me wanting to remember um, my ancestry and pass down the wisdom and, you know, memories that I had of my, my grandparents and that I've heard about, um, you know, other family members and basically really pass that down to, to my children. And so, you know, what do you, what do, you do when, when you come to, to learn, um, wow, that this is my heritage? I mean, did it, did it validate you? Did you feel more empowered by it? Um, it's great because the, the moment he told me that on the phone, of like kind of the summary of what he found as I was about to go into this luncheon, I said, Dad, 
all the while. I said, you know how there are families that are in the, like, the furniture business? It's like the grandfather starts it and then the son takes over and then the grandson takes over. I said, you know, there are people who have, like, a, a, a family business, so it could go on even for generations. I said, Dad, without even knowing this about the great-great-grandmother Jenkins, I said, without either of us really knowing about her, I said, Dad, do you see that we are, and I'll start to cry when I think about it. Well, if I said, Dad, we're in the family business, you and I are in the family business, and what what I meant by that is my dad, for 30-something years, probably close to, you know, maybe like 35 years, he's been a business consultant, and his area of focus is what he calls organizational transformation. So here's my dad. When I was a kid, he, his whole mission was to empower people, make a difference, take corporate communications to a level of, like, authenticity and honoring of people and disrupt kind of that machine-like way that people can kind of feel like they don't mean anything and really bring extraordinary sense of contribution and being valued and, and just have amazing results with his teams that he would consult. And I was like, Dad, and then look at my life. I mean, and without going into all of it, but you can even hear from the, the bio that you were reading. I mean, everything I'm about is how to you know, think out of the box, how to have our thinking be beyond what sort of the past would predict things should go. And I just said, Dad, we're in the family business. And the two of us were just like in awe for a second because here she was, the, the Jenkins, Baker grandmother Jenkins, you know, ushering in an era of new thinking. That was who she was. And every single person in my dad's family, all the way down to his mom, who I knew a little bit, but I knew of her because through the story. She died when I was like 10. But what's interesting is everybody in the family is like takes a stand for it's okay to have original thoughts. It's okay to go against the grain. That's probably the greatest thing my parents gave me is the ability to have a thought that no one agreed with and to be okay with it and go move forward. And I, so peer pressure didn't affect I mean, I was still kind of bummed that I wasn't fitting in, but I was more committed to my goals than fitting in. So they, they empowered me to be okay having these thoughts that weren't the, you know, the mass agreement, so to speak. And that's my family business. And suddenly my dad and I were just blown away that the impact, even though it wasn't known that she did this, it wasn't like we discussed it or something, it's the energetic, um, I, I've been studying different ways that people become kind of who we are, and one of the principles is we, we inherit conversations. So if you grow up in a household where everybody's like, oh my God, there's not enough money, the kids typically inherit that conversation, and even though they don't know it, they then start to have that same kind of repetition, self-talk, whatever you want to call it. So there is a dynamic that got inherited through the lineage of my family where our role is to pioneer. And about that same time, I took a seminar that um, we got to invent our life purpose. It was through Landmark Education. But the seminar was so cool because we all kind of crafted. It took like three or four weeks to craft and work on and, and write it and track it and throw it out and refine it and come up with our life purpose statement. And now I'm thinking kind of totally, no kidding, no accident, my life purpose statement is, the purpose of my life is for, is pioneering new thinking that frees and empowers people to manifest miraculous lives. And you, I say can it. Can you say that again? Absolutely. So the purpose my life is for is pioneering new thinking that frees and empowers people to manifest miraculous lives. Everything I do, everything I do resonates with that. Now, it's kind of like the whole premise of the course that I took was your purpose statement isn't, isn't like you create it. It's more like you're finding voice for what was already there to be said. 
And the idea that our purpose like finds us, we don't necessarily find it. We might kind of distinguish it from the blur, the static, and then kind of clear the channel, and then there it is. That's really what the exercise was of this particular seminar was to clear away the, you know, the carving of the David. It's already in the stone. It's just we had to clear away that which wasn't our natural expression, and then sort of sort it out and find out what was the true message. But that's what I'm realizing is that that in my particular family, what who women were always in my dad's side was this willingness to speak out, to speak for what can make a difference. And that, that got passed down. So it's so cool because at any moment that a woman decides to be kind of the first one in her family to do that, that creates a new lineage right there. It begins to be the ripple. Right. And throughout well, her family lineage, yeah. Yeah. No, you've said a, a bunch of cool things that I want to take a minute to expand upon. And, um, you know, one thing of you basically saying that that you give a new voice and a new way of thinking, you know, that was at the core of the civil rights movement. And it was basically taking a stand up about and going against the grain and seeing an injustice and saying, you know, no, we should, this might be what we've been doing, but we now need to go do this. You know, women need the right to vote. Um, Minorities need equality. Those types of messages are very are very strong in what we might look at today and be like, well, yeah, duh, that makes sense. It wasn't until somebody stood up and pointed it out that you can even think that there was another way to be. Mm. You know, it wasn't thought of before the suffrage movement that, that women should have a voice, you know, not at least in, in this culture um, and many other cultures. There are some cultures that where women did rule, but it wasn't um, wasn't the norm, at least here. And that movement, and it was a movement, you know, basically started with just some some women who had the guts to to stand up. And I think when you're looking when you're looking today, like, you know, things could be a little bit more subtle. You know, people people don't need to to do a ton of stuff to effectuate change, and especially like in in their own lives, you know, change does take work. And when you're talking about going from habit, and it's something that I talked about with um, with Gay last week on on Marriage Bound, was you do you get into a repetitive pattern that you're so programmed and used to, mm-hmm. and especially coming from the environment that you grew up with and hearing the language that your your family were speaking or somebody, let's say if it wasn't even your parents that you followed, let's say, you know, an uncle or an aunt or a grandmother or a grandpa, somebody else that was really close to you, um, you know, neighbor Jenkins down the block, you know. And I remember also like going into different households when I was younger and hearing a different topic of conversation, whether whether it was money, whether it was reactions to TV shows, whether it was politics and that was very different conversation than in my house. I'm sure the conversation in, in your house and in, in Grandma Jenkins' house about inequality and injustice and getting women the right to vote was a lot different for, like, you know, little Miss Susie Q with her pigtail <laughs> right. coming over for, like, Sunday supper than what she was experiencing in in her family. 
Mm-hmm. And then when you bring that conversation back, because I remember going to other people's house and hearing what they were saying and, like, coming back and, and sharing with my fa- my family, and you get the responses, and whatever their first responses is what you're sort of branded with as far as, um, you know, what, what your response sh- should also be. And trying to take yourself out of the of their their influence or their um, suggested responses and form your own is is a very interesting thing and hard, especially for children. So one thing I always say, like on Mama's Pearls, is to really you know be conscious and mindful of the environments that you set up for your kids. You know, you have the first. Um, you have the first response of setting up the home front, and that's a very strong part of it is, is basically whether you're programming your kids with prejudices or biases or closed-minded or open-minded or whether you brush Grandma Jenkins off, ah, she's, she's a drunk, or however you need to, um, however you need to like, deal with that because you're not okay with the, the message or you really feel like the habit should stay. And as you grow up and develop on your own as 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 a child and adolescent and as an adult, and you start getting the sense of I can have my own opinions, um, and it sounds like your family was really bred to 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 cultivate that and to have your own opinions. I mean, God forbid you're born into your family and you don't have any opinions, <laughs> you, mm-hmm. know? you know. But um, that's a very strong role as as parents and also as the individual child to find your own power and what your true voice is in. And so much of like um, of children's work when they go into therapy, you know, later on in life is basically weeding out the stuff that's not there. It's like the, the prejudices and, the, and the, the, the cues that are their parents and not really them. You just have to remember some stories that my mom told me because obviously I've shared about my dad's influence of having women who were very predominantly influential in the household. And my mom, it's interesting, her mother was also very, it was a flapper and did her own thing and was you know, like out there. But because of the era in which my grandmother Baker, my mom's mom, she married a, a, a private practice doctor that lived outside Philadelphia. And I because of the, the, that time, you know, the 30s and, and 40s, you kind of can see where women who were powerful sort of adapted to this, the way it still worked, where the men, you know, they made all the, you know, he brought the home the bacon, so to speak, and he was, my, my grandfather, uh, my mom's dad, was, I mean, just a story. Or even, he lived a long life, so I even got to know him for a while, but he was just, he was, he was totally a bigot. That was his nature. But his wife, my, my mom's mother, was such a strong person that when, he forbid my mom to date anybody unless they were Protestant. My mom got she got backed up by her own mother to like do whatever she wanted. So my mom dated Jewish guys, Catholic guys. She didn't really care because she was all about like who people are. But that came from her mom. So it took something for the for my grandmother to be married to someone so extremely prejudiced and judgmental to like accept okay fine that's where he is and to like give some coaching to her daughter that's still on. It's fascinating. I mean, that, that's kind of that ability to, you know, know who she was, honor that, okay, I'm married to a guy, that that's who he is right now, as far as he can see, and I'm going to still, like, stand up to what's going on over there, not, like, be totally submissive 
and empowered my mom in the face of all that. So there's my mom going off and being all these kind of radical things. And I think, whoa, like what it takes to be a woman in that environment, to know who she is, not get invalidated by his prejudice, and still be the kind of parent she needed to be to give my mom the courage to be a powerful woman in the face of someone who's, and to think her own thoughts in the face of someone, her father, that wanted her to think like his way was the right way. So it's really an interesting thing to, to be in the face of, of what that must have been like to grow up with. And she told me stories. So that was part of why I got the, the courage to like do my own thing because she was basically telling me the stories she had to go through where she you know, was being told it's this way but she wanted to do something else and she had the courage to do it. So those stories made such a difference in, my, in shaping my belief structure. Well, one of one of the things that I'm taking away from from that also is like your your children's um, sense of rebellion against like the the father figure, which an authority figure. You know, if everyone's saying no, um, you know, it's no, 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 and these are my hard lines. Well, I'm going to figure out how to go outside that anyway, and. Um, you know, I find as a parent, like, it's always like that one thing that I have such a hard no about that my kid wants to do. You know, like, the more that I say, no, no, no. Like, for for my son, for example, like, I really didn't want him to, to play with guns and weapons and that kind of stuff. And that's, like, the one thing, no matter whether I had a toy gun for him or not, he was making guns out of his finger or this or that. And that's, like, the one thing that he's obsessed with. Now, cut back to um, <laughs> a fun example from one of my, my law school girlfriends. One of my law school f- girlfriends grew up in a household that is hardcore Yankee fans. Okay, Now, if you're from New York, you understand that if you are a hardcore Yankee fan, that you must absolutely hate the Red Sox. And she wound up marrying somebody who's a Red Sox fan. <laughs> Hilarious. Hilarious. So, yeah, that that one just cracks me up completely because, you know, that's the only thing that her dad would be, like, not okay with. And that, like, that's like their family religion is, the, you know, the Yankees, so to speak. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my God. Yeah, and you know, it's really great what you're talking about, the guns thing, because my husband, who is just one of the most peaceful um, you know, wants to empower people. I mean, he's, like, got his intense personality. He's, you know, Colombian, so he has his moments where he's just, ah, passion, and he gets mad about things or he gets excited about things. But but overall, who he is is a person of deep respect and builds teams within his, you know, this is, like, an amazing team leader. We saw factories where people were speaking, and he's in Spanish, so he's got all these different countries that are all Spanish-speaking, and he could somehow unify these people. So there's a, really a capacity for team building and unification that my husband has. So that's why to me he's like, he creates a peaceful dynamic, even if it's intense and all that. But he was, he tells me these stories of him when he was a kid. I mean, everything was about guns and little bottles. And I'm thinking to myself, what is the heck? And he's so not that now. You know, he's not, he's like, he's not a violent person. You know, he's just so the opposite. But somehow maybe the, I'm just kind of noticing like that, like it wasn't like it conditioned him to start like being a, a gun-toting, you know, wild man or something. I mean, it's really interesting. Right. He, his, his parents, his mother was very much a, like a peaceful person. His dad, you know, they're just, they're really, they still have this wonderful marriage, you know, 50-something years later. So those of you who grew up around a lot of love, and so I, I think that could be it. Like, if they play with guns and love is absent, you know, you can see where that could go. 
playing with guns and all he got was love and support around him and encouragement to go for it, you know, be whoever he wanted to be. And if he failed, he was still loved and didn't ever really have to, you know, he went for it and, okay, it didn't work. It's okay. Pick yourself back up. So he's just, like, so comfortable with himself. And the, the violent thing is just not present. <laughs> right. Except for, like, right. to defend me. If someone, like, gets near me and we're in the city in Paris, and he gets really protected. Okay. Other than that. Right. <laughs> you know, so well, it's, it's very cute because the resisting, there you go back to right. the good old, you know, what we resist persists. So it's like, imagine, like, the kid, if, I'm just trying to picture Eddie, if he had not been allowed to play with them, there would have been, like, every moment he could sneak to a friend, he would probably want to play with them. So it's kind of right. funny how we just have to, like, wow, how do we allow a person to be, and at the same time, provide our instruction and right. our guidance. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, I mean, that's just, I think, part of the nature of being a child is wanting to also, you know, test your family boundaries and the limits and see how far you can go with authority. And um, that's also, I think, one of one of the things we, we struggle with just in our societies, too. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't want to just toe the lines, you, you look to do something that's, quote, radical. Um, when I was researching today's, you know, our call for today, I, um, I came across just such powerful women and such powerful quotes. And what we were talking about before with finding your new voice just, re- just um, reminded me to that I wanted to read this quote by Margaret Sanger, who said, women must not accept. She must challenge. She must not be awed by that which has been built up around her. She must reverence that women in her which struggles for expression. She must reverence that woman in her which struggles for expression. Hmm. Isn't that cool? It's very good. And then, and then another quote that I came across by Diane Mary Child says, a woman is the full circle. Within her is the power to create, nurture, and transform. So it's, it's really interesting getting the conversation going about your lineage, about um, setting up to not repeat the same conversations that we've been having and to create those um, habitual responses, but to really go out and set out, and you had the encouragement just from your blood about going out and figuring out what it was you were to pioneer in your own life. And the one thing I see, like, as the core to girl power is that we can do that for each other and for ourselves, and women just naturally um, and inherently have that, you know, just innate ability to be more the nurturer, the caretakers, um, the the sense of, you know, creation, and also the transformational leaders. Mm, and, right. and, yeah, and when you were talking about, you know, your life's purpose, which part of that is helping to, um, you know, to be a pioneer to help others manifest lives of their dreams, you know, that's no small purpose. <laughs> And it's interesting it's not, like, someone, it's not it, like I just want to have fun and, you know. <laughs> yeah. It is really it is really interesting because it's, the, you know, the way in which I go about it. And I've actually found a lot of women have found, like, the connection to, let's say, I think I've even mentioned to you a couple of times, but the, non, the nonprofit called The Hunger Project gave me a place to sort of see a structure for global uh, mobilization of women, just as an example. 
Now, a lot of my friends might just come to one of my little get-togethers about the Hunger Project, and they leave maybe not like ready to be a you know an advocate like I am, but they leave going, "Whoa, there is definitely something happening in the world," which is why I like to. My favorite reason for sharing the Hunger Project is just so that it creates this new little illuminates a little shadow that may have been over there in the corner. That whoa, see, so the thing's fascinating about the Hunger Project. Yeah, there's actually two. There, I love this. Is it okay if I talk about it real quick? Yeah, no, no, no. That's I, that's where we're going next. So definitely. so brilliant. So we're like right on in sync. Because what's interesting, the Hunger Project uncovered. Actually, they didn't even uncover it. It was UNICEF had commissioned a study which uncovered the thing I'm about to distinguish, and then the Hunger Project jumped on it and ran like used this study that UNICEF came out with to really reinvent itself and make it its main focus. So UNICEF, I think it was around 18, 20 years ago commissioned a study, put, you know, experts, MDs, PhDs on a trip into India because that's where the largest percentage of, of what's called the chronic hungry of our planet. So there's famine and then there's chronic hunger. 8% of, you know, this is a statistic, 20,000 people a day die of hunger, okay? 8% of that comes from famine. The other 92% comes from this sort of invisible thing called chronic hunger. It doesn't look very interesting. It doesn't look like a flood. It doesn't look like bloated bellies. Actually, they just look like normal people. It's just that the little girl that looks like she's eight is really 12. So it has a look, just that it's not very sensational. It doesn't end up on the news. So it's kind of hiding and the world's not kind of, we're kind of unaware of, of what to do about it. But when they say, okay, if there's such a huge percent of people dying from chronic hunger, what is the deal? So UNICEF created this study, a little trip into India, and the result was this report that was published called the Enigma study because the findings were so shocking that they didn't expect to find what they found, which was that the connector, the like kind of the source, the link, wherever hunger was the most severe, it's also where women were the most subjugated. No one had ever put those two issues together. No one had ever linked hunger with the subjugation of women. Like no one. It just had never come up on the radar. Even when it came up on the radar, it's so hard to remember because it's just something that it's not what we're oriented around to deal with. Like a gender issue is such a weird, touchy, um, con controversial subject that it's sort of like nobody really wants to go there. So it, it's even funny to watch how the UN and other organizations have had to really keep being reminded, don't forget to include empowerment of women. Oh, yeah, because it just kind of keeps falling off the back of the stove, not even as a, in the back burner. And what, what happened was, another part just said, hmm, so when women get their voice, hunger ends. That, that became really the, the key um, fulcrum of their focus. So for 18 years now, Hunger Project kind of retired everything it was doing and said then the key is mobilizing people as the authors of their own future rather than giving them handouts. Let's empower them to be the ones that go, oh, you mean I'm, I, we can do this? I don't have to wait for someone else? This was huge because since pretty much the war, you know, after World War II, that's when international foreign aid became a phenomenon. It was actually just a new thing for our world. We're babies as a global society of dealing with this thing called, you know, chronic hunger, foreign aid, how to make it work. We use our old models, they don't work. So what they found is when you empower women, and then the men reinvent who they are to be co-equal with these women, all of a sudden, the hunger issue, like in Africa, the model that they have in place, it takes five years, and sustained end of hunger is in place. It's the most fascinating thing to watch. And I was with a group of girlfriends on Sunday, and we were sitting around, and they were like, tell me more about the Hunger Project. So like 10 of us, and I just shared a little bit. And then I remembered. I said, oh, so that's what the Hunger Project looks like in Africa, India, wherever, Bangladesh. But in the developed countries, the work of the Hunger Project looks completely different because we don't have that same percentage of people dying from 
chronic hunger, that's where the programs of the Hunger Project go to work, where it's the most severe. But in the developed countries where, yes, there is poverty, but it's not where you know tens of thousands of people aren't dying a day kind of thing. What the work of the Hunger Project is, for me here in the United States or for friends of mine in Europe, what we're dealing with as women in particular is women and their money. It's, that's the area where the Hunger Project is having women start to notice that statistically what we found is that when women have money to invest in either philanthropic activity or in some kind of like business that was like, oh, this, let's put my stock, they look for what makes a difference. It's interesting. They're saying just the way women invest their money in either in business investments or in philanthropic arenas, it's for what benefits people. They can't help but look there. And so that started inspiring me to take on some other initiatives in my own life, which is how do I empower women to become wealthy? Because more money that's in women's hands, the faster, you know, like social development of our planet. So it's just it's kind of interesting how women with money, there's a lot of consciousness to serve and contribute. And I'll just end with this little quote. Thank goodness a man said it because it may means more coming from a man, but he's the director of Hunger Project for... Um, a country in Africa, Burkina Faso, he said, you know, in his work for, you know, last 10-something years with the, with the Hunger Project, he says, when you give men more power, they have more power. When you give women more power, life improves for everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow. And what men are noticing is that when their wives started getting more power, when their wives had a voice, their own lives improved, and that's what got the men on board in these places like, you know, remote places in Bangladesh, Africa, India. It, it does, it meets with resistance at first, but then something clicks and everyone starts noticing that life is moving forward so quickly when women get just a little bit of power. And that's when, I mean, I have tears in my eyes just thinking about what that means. Right. You know, I, for me, the Hunger Project kind of resembles a, a model that I said, wow, this is actually the model for world peace. And so I got very inspired. And it's a great website, thp.org, The Hunger Project, thp.org. The videos are brilliant footage of what's happening on the ground in these different countries. So I always ask people just to go get inspired by who women are when they get a little power in these, in these countries. It's, just, it's radically, like, quantum leaps happen in the, in the world of these people in these different villages and continents, and it's very inspiring. It's amazing. And it's really... Um you know, it gets into the whole role of money in our society, um, how, you know, why is it through money that we get em- empowered? But if that's what it, if that's what it takes, then, then sure. Um, but how does the Hunger Project work to, you know, do they work to train women? You know, how does it get from step one to step, to step five with women becoming empowered? Well, it's it's interesting because um, there's a there's a three minute, I think it's actually three and a half, literally three and a half minute video clip on the Hunger Project website. You have to like you know kind of go to more info, and that's where the videos are. But it's okay. uh, three and a half minute clip called Women's Leadership Workshop, I believe is what it's titled. It happens to be a clip of what they're doing in India. So it would be the reason it's hard to answer the question is that in each country, and in certain even different aspects of different countries. The Hunger Project trains local indigenous people to be the Hunger Project of Bangladesh. So it's Bangladeshi speaking to fellow Bangladeshi, not like the white man, white woman from New York coming in to save the day. So it's very, very powerful because they can hear it from each other. 
So it's it's the it's like we're taking a stand for ourselves. But in the training program, you know, they bring different country directors in from wherever to train that new staff, which by the way has to be fifty percent women for the you know, in that hunger project office. And what's cool is the first kind of brainstorming workshop when they're training them is like what's what's needed here? So it's more of a instead of cookie cutter, it's what's what's the fulcrum here, what's the you know, the point, the tipping point to make a difference. And in India, and that's why I love sending people to that three and a half minute video, in India it's just something happened where women are, um, they're so not even acknowledged that their entire lives a woman never hears her first name uttered out of anyone's mouth. So in the women's leadership workshop in India, that's why I heard that. The first thing they're supposed to do is, as a woman, when they stand up and, you know, please introduce yourself. So she's like, why, why, would it, why would anyone want to know my name? It's as much in the woman's world to be strange that someone would want to know my first name, and we just think it'd be weird to never hear our first name, but that's part of it takes two to tango. But in India, um, a parliament vote, it was just a few votes, it was not any kind of landslide. Um, a number of years ago, a vote was passed to have one-third of the rural council seats reserved for women. So a law mandated that one-third of these seats must be held by women. Now, women had never left their house. Women are illiterate. They've never looked a man in the eye unless it's a family member. And now they're supposed to sit as three women and say six guys out of a total of nine. And the women for a couple years were just sitting there saying nothing. The men would still run the meeting. Maybe the woman would bring her husband's views to the meeting, but that was kind of how it went. So for, after a few years of this, when the Hunger Project came into India, they said, okay, what's, what's, how's that going? And they're like, oh, it's a joke. You know, women aren't making any difference at all. And they said, that's it. That's our program here. And they started having these workshops to empower women to take, like, they don't even know what it is to, you know, take on a project or whatever. So they started doing these workshops called the Women's Leadership Workshop. And that's why I tell people to watch the three and a half minute video. They literally transform before your eyes. By the end of the day, they've learned that they're, they never knew the constitution of their own country. They see maps of their village. They never see, because women don't go to school because the girls stay home because they're part of the staff to keep and cook and clean and get the water. They, that's who women are because you're trying to take care of your boys. Your sons are your future. So they go to school and the girls stay home and help mom. And I mean, they have so much manual labor. You can't even believe how much working they're doing. So they're the, like the, the staff that runs everything. And what happens is the, the husbands get all inspired as they started to see what happened to their wife. We hear things like, wow, you know, this is an arranged marriage. I never knew my wife could be my friend. I mean, really, really amazing transformational things. But the bottom line is the women start to take on a project, a 90-day project, back in their councils when they go back to their council seat, and they come back together 90 days later. So it's supposed to just be like a baby project to kind of give them a taste of victory and success at fulfilling on, you know, something they, they create, implement, and see how it goes. And like water that has never come into the village. Because, you know, for 5,000 years you've got to go walk your three miles to get it. That's just the way it is. The water starts coming into these villages, and the men start to notice, whoa, this never got done before. Now it's getting done. And everyone, you know, had a different pace of coming on board. But that would be an example. And then they start to become productive. They start being, um, the prosperity would come into their family because the wife was now kind of a noted, you know, person in the community. And it just everything changed in the way food was grown, and people had more time because they weren't walking five hours a day to go get water and now they can just get water around the corner and then they have time to study and learn how to speak, you know, like be, be literate. It is so shocking to see this and that's just one country. I mean, it's different in every single country but the idea is it's empowerment of courses that teach 
the women in this particular country, and say Bangladesh, it's men and women will be in the courses together, and they start to get coached on having a vision, how to declare a project into existence, and then create milestones and come back to the future. And this is the stuff that you know business owners pay tens of thousands to take to learn how to fulfill on project you know, execution and, and making it happen. So that's what we're teaching people in these various little under a tree workshops and life just catapults forward. And that's when they start to know that they can do it. They don't have to wait for someone to come save them. It's amazing. You know, we 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 forget when we're surrounded in, in this world of modern conveniences um, at how difficult and challenging and just different that life can be and is for people around the world. So, you know, thank you for for sharing that with us and mm-hmm. um, and about the Hunger Project. I, I think it's just a, a brilliant um, brilliant organization and and um and methodology that they're that they're doing. So we know that we can find the Hunger Project at www.the.org. And Cynthia, would you mind telling our listeners where they can find you? Well, let me just where, where is THP like Paul? THP. Um, okay. Yeah, like thehungerproject.org. Just to make sure everybody got that. Right. Well, the best way to find me is going to be by email. At this point, I've got a bunch of different projects in the works, and I want to make sure people get me correctly. So my email is vision, V-I-S-I-O-N dot C-G-C, my initials, Cynthia Garinawalt Karavaha, C-G-C, at gmail.com. Great. And just you. You know, put um, Cynthia Littman in the subject line, and I'll, be, I'll know the connection. That sounds great. Or Mom and, and Pearls. Uh, <laughs> yes, Mom and Pearls. That's even better in the subject line, Mom and Pearls, yeah. Cynthia Whitman. Yay, thank you so yeah. much. This was truly empowering and a powerful girl power hour on Mom and Pearls. And I want to close out with our um, come tell, excuse me, come tell Mama questions that I always ask. So, Cynthia, tell me, what is your luxury indulgence? What's my luxury indulgence? Mm-hmm. I love when a chef has prepared something in the area of raw vegetarian cuisine. So that's what I get to do. Is when I get to I don't learn to, I don't learn to cook, but it's when I go and say this person's <laughs> a master. You know, pure food and wine is an example. Lucky Duck around the corner, the right on near Irving and Seventeenth in the city, and I just, it's like one of my gifts to myself, is to, when I know I'm eating <laughs> raw vegetarian, it was made by a master, and I know I'm doing something so good for my body, and of course, it tastes so incredible. <laughs> okay, which of the following would you choose? The best sex of your life, the best meal of your life, or the best sleep of your life? Huh. Well, I guess I kind of answered the best, the best meal. Isn't that the greatest thing? What is your favorite movie genre? Well, my favorite trilogy, of course, is The Matrix, and I don't know what genre that is, but it's people might think it's some yeah, they think it's sci-fi, but to me, it's it's a transformational message using a movie to. Someone said, "See, everybody thinks that The Matrix was a a movie, but it was a documentary of today's society." And we laughed, so I love that one. It's um, what I would classify as spiritual cinema. Yeah. Um, okay, so food, do you prefer sweet or salty? 
sweet. And what do you see as your most beautiful feature? Hmm. Probably my my eyes. You do have lovely eyes. Thank you. <laughs> and the best advice that your mama gave you? Be okay thinking whatever it is you want to think. Cool. Okay, now is that time on Mama's Pearls where Cynthia and I go back to our day jobs. And mm-hmm. I really want to thank you, Cynthia, for sharing this hour with us. It was truly inspiring and empowering, and I think we can all walk away um, from this feeling truly really committed to our own pathways, and I really appreciate you spending this time with us. Again, you can find any of the um, archives here at, at Mama's Pearls at www.blogtalkradio.com slash Mama's Pearls. And again, Cynthia, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Cynthia. You're amazing. Thanks. And this is Cynthia of Mama's Pearls, and I'm reminding you to enjoy your children, enjoy your family, say I love you, and remember that you do hold the key to limitless power. You can find me on email at Cynthia at MamasPearls.com, on Twitter at SynTweet, that's C-Y-N-T-W-E-E-T. My blog, Mama's Pearls, can be found at www.mamaspearls.blogspot.com. And again, have a fabulous week. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Anne. Bye.